Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the law finally closing in on Donald Trump, who no longer has the protection of the presidency and is facing the Department of Justice, a special counsel, the DA in Atlanta, the DA in Manhattan, and many other lawsuits against him. Joining us is James Risen, who has experienced the prosecutorial zeal of Jack Smith, the special counsel now investigating Trump on the theft of classified documents and the January 6 cases. James is senior national security correspondent at The Intercept and a former investigative journalist with The New York Times and author of the New York Times bestsellers State of War and Pay Any Price, Greed, Power and Endless War. He won a Pulitzer Prize for his stories on the warrantless wiretapping by the NSA and is currently the director of the Press Freedom Defense Fund, which has provided financial assistance to Maria Reyes' legal defense in the Philippines. We will discuss his article at The Intercept, Donald Trump is out of power and out of luck. The ex-president is finally fair game for an entire legion of lawyers. Then we'll look into the vote today to remove Iran from the UN Commission on the Status of Women at a time when the Iranian regime is murdering women who are leading a revolution sparked by the killing of a young woman in the custody of the morality police. Joining us is Nada Hashemi, Director of the Center for Middle East Studies at the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies at the University of Denver. He's the author of The People Reloaded, The Green Movement and the Struggle for Iran's Future, and his latest book is Sectarianization, Mapping the New Politics of the Middle East. Then finally we'll assess the second three-day Africa Leaders Summit in Washington underway with a gap between the first under Obama and the second under Biden, the Trump years of contempt for Africa, which the former president expressed in crude language. Joining us is Dr. Stephen W. Rogers, the executive director of the Africa Faith and Justice Network. He has a background in public policy and urban planning with a specific interest in globalization and governance in Africa. Dr. Rogers has served in the public and private sectors as an academic, researcher, and thought leader. He's also had several years of experience in higher education in Sierra Leone and South Africa. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our many sustaining listeners and donors whose continued and growing support for Background Briefing over the past year has maintained our commercial-free independence as we build our online podcast audience, broadcast on a growing number of stations nationwide, expand our production team, create a new home for our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org, and make sure every program remains available to all with no paywalls. If you haven't yet and are able to make a monthly contribution, visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions, large and small, enable us to provide you with a daily briefing on important issues in the news as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is James Risen, the senior national security correspondent at The Intercept and a former investigative journalist with The New York Times and the author of The New York Times bestsellers, State of War and Pay Any Price, Greed, Power and Endless War. He won a Pulitzer for his stories about the warrantless wiretapping by the NSA and is currently the director of the Press Freedom Defense Fund, which has provided financial assistance for Maria Reyes' legal defense in the Philippines. And his latest article at The Intercept is, Donald Trump is out of power and out of luck. The ex-president is finally fair game for an entire legion of lawyers. Welcome to Background Briefing, James Risen. 
Hi, how are you? I'm well, thanks, uh, Jim. And in your article, you write that Trump is finally finding out that being a former president is not the same thing as being a president. Now, obviously, he had legal protection under that OLC memo, you can't indict a sitting president, which is why the Mueller report failed or the Mueller inquiry failed even though they had the goods, and of course nobody's ever read the damn thing, so (laughs) it's amazing how all that evidence somehow hasn't uh, penetrated the public consciousness. But clearly this is a man who is hoisted this stop-the-steal nonsense in order to fight to stay in power, and and he's now running again for president, which is another desperate attempt to somehow get the legal protection that he had when he was president. So... Is that why he really desperately wants to be president again? I think so. I think the uh, I think that's his main uh, incentive now is to uh, get uh, legal protections, and you know he likes the perks, obviously, of the office too. Uh, I don't think he cares one way or the other about America or about the country or the Constitution. Um, I think he he wants to uh, stay out of jail. And the best way he knows how to do that is to first run for president. And he, I think he, uh, he thought that by announcing early that that would somehow insulate him from legal problems, but that doesn't. And I think that's, I think his uh, decision to announce early has backfired because the only thing it really did was convince Attorney General Merrick Garland to uh, appoint a special prosecutor to investigate uh, Trump on both the classified documents case and the January 6th case. And I think ultimately that decision has actually accelerated and intensified the investigations because now for the first time you have someone kind of uh, in charge of those investigations who's public and uh, who is kind of going to be held accountable for um, the prosecutions of of Donald Trump. You know, prior to that, I think the Justice Department had been kind of lagging behind uh, really uh, both the Congress and other investigations. And now I think... um, the new special counsel, Jack Smith, is going to be more, is already proving that he's being more aggressive than the Justice Department had prior to this. So I think, uh, you know, one of the things that struck me when I was working on the story was just how many legal problems Donald Trump has right now. It's amazing. Uh, and it's far more than I realized. And it's far more than I think most people realize uh, right now. Well, you of all people, James Risen, know about Jack Smith because he prosecuted you. Yeah, yeah, he was uh, part of the team that uh, that came after me when uh, they subpoenaed me to try to reveal my um, confidential sources on a story I did on the CIA in Iran. And since then, he's you know moved on to other things. But he is, I can tell you, the, all the people involved in that. Uh, investigation on the Justice Department side were relentless. They came after me forever, for seven years. And um, so I I think that, you know, if unless he proves 
that he only goes after uh, small fish relentlessly, which I think would be a horrible uh, look for the Justice Department, uh, then he's going to go after Trump pretty aggressively. I think that's really the test to me of this, of what they're going to be doing is, you know, they've gone after people, low-level people for years for leaking classified information or for mishandling classified information. And now is their chance to prove that there is, there really is uh, one justice system for everyone and not just for the low-level people in the government. And that's, of course, this case that that Jack Smith is handling in terms of the Mar-a-Lago classified yeah. documents, but he's also handling uh, the January 6th investigation that the DOJ has. And on right. Monday, the January 6th House Committee will will have their final hearing, and then on the 21st of December, their report will come out, and then you have to add to that, just to get a sense of the legal world closing in on Trump, you've got Tiffany Willis's Fulton County investigation, you've got Alvin Bragg now having secured a, a conviction against the Trump organization, Trump's company, now he's going to go after Trump and revive, uh, I don't know, he's not, not going to revive the RICO case, but he's going to look into uh, the Stormy Daniels case. And he's appointed right. Matthew Colangelo, the formerly the third highest ranking lawyer in the Department of Justice, to lead that investigation. So I guess... <laughs> yeah, there's you... plenty more, you know, the, the, odd, the thing that I didn't realize, there's a lot of other cases going on against Trump that I had, you know, I was not familiar with. Uh, beyond those. And I mean, it, it would almost take me, yeah, it was kind of exhausting just to research and read all of the legal matters that are now before, you know, dealing with Donald Trump. And I just can't imagine. I mean, I think this is what makes him kind of like a psychopath in a way is how do you, how do you continue to do behave the same way for so many years when it is leading to so much legal problems constantly. And that is a real, to me, that's, that's a major feature of his personality is his willingness to flout the, flout the law and to constantly be uh, under investigation of one form or another. Uh, and it's just stunning if you look at it how many cases there really are now. Right, but this career criminal who comes from a, a family of criminals going back to his grandfather who ran brothels, yeah. I mean, he was never the billionaire and the successful businessman. He, in fact, he was a catastrophe as a businessman, but he survived with a lot of help from dirty Russian money. He became president yeah. of the United States, for God's sake. What does that say about America? It's not nothing good, unfortunately. Uh, yeah, that's the real problem is that somehow uh, his his supporters overlook all of this. And I that, you know, that's a whole nother discussion. But uh, it's I, I really think it's close to the end of the road for him because uh, the the legal. Once, you know, it, it took a while for the justice, 
for the justice system, the judicial and legal systems of the country to ramp up against him once he got out of office. But I think there had been basically uh, a period where nothing really happened against him while he was president, legally. And now all of that has been unfrozen. And he is now facing so many uh, problems that it's just unbelievable to think that uh, he's going to not face some consequences for some of these. I mean, obviously that it could happen, but I just find that difficult to believe that he's not going to, uh, in some way, face you know, uh, face the music. I think, frankly, the the Georgia case may be the first major case that comes down against him, either that or the documents case. I think the Justice Department, if they don't prosecute him on the on the documents case, I think they realize that they will have a very difficult argument to make ever again on the handling on the importance of handling uh, classified information. I think ev- I think in the future it would be extremely difficult for them to prosecute low-level government insiders for leaking classified information if they don't prosecute him. And I think they know that. And I think in Georgia, and I think in Georgia, the the problem, I think that case and the Georgia case are both going to come up soon. I think the, uh, in Georgia, they have him making, you know, on recordings, making phone calls to Georgia officials, seeking them to conspire to break the law. So uh, the fact that he was still present when he did that, uh, does that make any difference? I don't think so. I mean, I think that's one of the issues that um, I think has been resolved to some degree now that he's out of office is that he's no longer has that same protection. You know, I think the, the issue was, do you indict him while he's president? And it wasn't so much, I don't believe, I mean, I could be wrong, maybe some lawyers could correct me, but I don't, I think the main issue was you don't indict a sitting president, but I don't think there was ever a belief that that means you can never indict him for his behavior while he's president. Sure. And and certainly the documents case is all post-presidency. I mean, yeah. in the sense that yeah. he he's defied uh, the, the the archives, and uh, there was even a right. chance, even a possibility just very recently of contempt of court, which the judge decided not, not right. to. But they had a case against him, so that's probably the strongest case, don't you think, uh, Jim? Yeah, I do. I think I think it's a cut and dried case. Um, you know, they keep talking about how they want to prove it, intent. Um, but they never bothered to try to prove intent with any other leak case. Um, and so I think they're going to, if they don't go forward with this, I think it will make every leak prosecution they've done for the last 15 years uh, look like a joke and like uh, what all of the critics said they were, which was uh, 
an effort to go after low-level people without holding anyone higher up accountable. And that's a terrible thing for the Justice Department to have to admit. But I think it'll be very difficult for them not to admit that if they don't prosecute him for this. So in the last couple of minutes, uh, James Rison, he will obviously uh, try and turn himself into a martyr and he'll continue the grift to raise money. Mm -hmm. But will it backfire in any way in the sense that, you know, he could get a second wind? I mean, he seems to be fading. No, I don't think I I think, you know, that's one of the things that he likes. He and his supporters like to say is that, oh, you know, you'll make me stronger. That's never happens. (laughs) You know, having somebody in jail, you know, unless they're a political prisoner in Russia or something, that doesn't make you stronger. This is not the same as uh, the Soviet Union. So I just don't think that's true. I don't believe. And I think, frankly, that there's, you know, after the midterms in which uh, his chosen candidates did bad, you know, almost all got defeated. I think that has opened the door to the Republican Party to disassociate themselves from him. There's plenty of people in the Republican Party who want to just, you know, distance themselves from him. They just are cowards and are so far uh, have been unable to or unwilling to do it. But I think once they see an opening there, they will, they will try to break with him. I don't think, I think if he's in jail uh, or under indictment, I just don't think that will be a positive for him the way he seems to think, spin it. Right, but just in closing, there's a long distance between being indicted and ending up in jail. Sure, but I think once you're indicted, I think that will make a huge difference for, I don't think there'll be, you know, I could be wrong, but I just don't see that as something, as a positive. You know, I think uh, Republicans seem really uh, anxious to coalesce around Ron DeSantis. For some well, unknown that's reason. not reassuring he's because he he's a no. actually a more effective fascist than Trump is. Yeah, so, yeah, that's uh, the problem. God help us that's if that. Problem, if, I, yeah. yeah, but I think that's the um, the counterweight to, sure. that Trump has to worry about right now within the Republican Party. Well, James Rison, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Sure, thanks again. And again, I've been speaking with James Risen, who's a senior national security correspondent at The Intercept and a former investigative journalist with The New York Times and the author of The New York Times bestsellers State of War and Pay Any Price, Greed, Power and Endless War. He won a Pulitzer Prize for his stories about warrantless wiretapping by the NSA, and he's currently the director of the Press Freedom Defense Fund, which has provided financial assistance for Maria Reyes' legal defense in the Philippines. And his latest article at The Intercept is Donald Trump is out of power and out of luck. The ex-president is finally fair game for an entire legion of lawyers. We're going to take a restation break. We're back looking into the vote today to remove Iran from the UN Commission on the Status of Women at a time when the Iranian regime is murdering women who are leading a revolution sparked by the killing of a young woman in the custody of the morality police.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Nada Hashemi, who's the Director of the Center for Middle East Studies at the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies at the University of Denver. He's the author of The People Reloaded, The Green Movement and the Struggle for Iran's Future. And his latest book is Sectarianization, Mapping the New Politics of the Middle East. Welcome to Background Briefing, Nada Hashemi. Thanks for the invitation, Ian. Thanks for joining us. And today, the Iran uh, was removed from the Commission on the Status of Women at the United Nations during its fifth plenary meeting of the Economic and Social Council of the United Nations in New York. This was led by the United States, and they got a majority vote. And I think eight countries voted with Iran to stay on this commission at a time when there's a revolution underway in Iran led by brave young women and uh, the government is slaughtering women and it all happened because of uh, the murder of a woman in custody. So obviously this is a small step in terms of justice, wouldn't you say? Oh, I totally agree. I mean, it's uh, an important step, but we also should keep in mind it's largely a symbolic step. It's not going to affect the balance of power in Iran today and the struggle for Iran's future, which is very much a contestation, as you just indicated, between young women and and many men challenging a deeply corrupt and authoritarian repressive regime. So these types of acts of international solidarity are very important. I think they encourage the protesters on the ground, but they're not going to shift the balance of power between the regime and the people. And among the eight countries, the 16 abstained, but the eight countries that voted with Iran to stay on the Commission for the Status on the Status of Women, of course, was China and in particular Russia, who has a, a deepening military relationship now where Iranian drones are going to be manufactured in, in Russia. And I'm assuming in the quid pro quo, Russia is arming Iran. We know that much, but we don't know exactly the extent to which which they're also helping in the repressive apparatus since Putin has developed such a oppressive surveillance state where dissent has been totally squashed and the people who oppose him have left the country. So all that's left in Russia now are these even crazier people than Putin on the far nationalist right. So what's your understanding of of what's going on in that military quid pro quo. We know that Russia's getting these drones and they want ballistic missiles, but there are restrictions on whether Iran can can sell and transfer these missiles of a certain range that will invoke UN sanctions against them. So give us a portrait of what's going on and particularly what Iran is getting for taking this stance in helping Russia in its completely despicable war against Ukraine? Well, there's a convergence of interests between Iran and Russia over um, the global distribution of power. I mean, both of these countries are now um, um, understandably and correctly, you know, targeted by um, Western democracies for their policies, both regionally and internally. Um, it, it sort of makes sense that they're forging stronger relations because both of them are under severe international sanction and um, they suffer from internal, you know, uh, crises of legitimacy of, of their economies. 
the, the, my first observation about this recent announcement that Iran and Russia are, you know, expanding their military relationship and that Iran is going to be sending drones and, and missiles to Russia is what a sad commentary this is on the state of Russia under Vladimir Putin, that they have to be importing arms Iran, when usually it's the reverse, Russia is a major arms producer and it sells it to different countries of the world for influence. But the fact that they have to rely on a, you know, a, a regional power like Iran for uh, military assistance really uh, tells us that all is not well um, in, in Vladimir Putin's Russia. And, and this is really a function of the fact that he's losing the war in Ukraine. He badly miscalculated. Um, so uh, my, my own general sort of thoughts on this new uh, military uh, alliance between um, uh, Iran and Russia is that um, it, it's really not going to change the global balance of power. And it's not going to, I think, make a significant difference in terms of um, the domestic political crises that both of these authoritarian regimes uh, are facing. I mean, Iran's you know big problem is its own population. And it's an open question whether in a few years there even is going to be an Islamic Republic of Iran. So getting, you know, fighter jets from, from Russia and it, it, more military hardware is not going to help the Islamic Republic face its biggest threat, which is really the uh, the protests, which are now approaching uh, its fourth month. So that's the that's my, you know, immediate reaction to the story. So, but what's happening in terms of the regional alignment of powers with this new alliance that Iran has with Russia? It must be making life a little difficult for Mohammed bin Salman, who the Saudi crown prince, soon to be king, who has an, a de facto alliance with Putin through OPEC Plus, as do the, the Gulf Emirates. So how can MBS be in bed with Russia when Iran's in bed with Russia? I mean, that's, that's odd in itself. And are the Israelis having second thoughts now? Because they haven't been helping Ukraine out. Ukraine desperately wants the Iron Dome system to literally protect itself against Iranian drones. And Netanyahu is obsessed with Iran. So how come he's not helping Ukraine defend itself against Iranian drones in the hands of the Russians? I, I just don't get it. Yeah, I think uh, those are good questions. I think um, the the answer to those questions is that I don't think these new alliances between uh, Iran and Russia or the Saudi crown prince in Russia, um, or more recently, the, the, the related story is the recent visit of Xi Jinping to Saudi Arabia, where he was given, you know, the red carpet treatment, and there was an announcement of a massive expansion of relations, both economic and military. I don't think these um, developments really fundamentally change the balance of power in the region or globally. I think a lot of the reporting that we're seeing um, somewhat suggests that these are major power shifts, but I don't think they fundamentally sort of, you know, you know, make make a big difference. Uh, uh, Russia is playing all sides. You know, in, in in many ways, Russia has relations with Israel. Russia has relations and expanding relations with Iran. It has a very warm and friendly relations with um, with MBS in Saudi Arabia, coordinating policy on the production of oil. Um, and China now is stepping into the region. Um, uh, expanding its relationship with all the powers. China has good relationship with Israel, with Iran, with you know Saudi Arabia. Um, a, a lot of this has to do partly with America's perceived withdrawal from the Middle East, but I also think that's greatly exaggerated. Even though American troops are no longer on the ground in Iraq and Afghanistan, they still have 
dozens of military bases in the region and are still supporting their allies in ways that I think are insufficiently appreciated by outside observers. American arms are still flowing to their longstanding authoritarian allies in the Arab world. That hasn't changed, and I don't think it will change in the future. So I think a lot of this reporting is uh, interesting to follow, but I don't think it signifies or suggests that there's sort of a major balance of a shift in power between regional powers in the Middle East or on the global level as well. So let's turn back to the issue of uh, Iranian women who and the young women who are leading this revolution. And they're inspiring and brave, and they are being shot at by the Revolutionary Guard Corps. Apparently they aim for the women and girls' faces and genitals. That's deliberate, and we know how brutal they are. And uh, it all began because of the beating of a of a young woman over in an arrest by the morality police, you know, these arbitrary arrests over one little wisp of hair under your hijab and you get hauled off to prison. So given that Iran was just booted off the United Nations Commission on the status of women, first of all, they shouldn't have been there in the first place, surely, given the oppression of women that goes on in that country. Is there any sense of what that will do to this movement? I mean... You know, I read a piece in the New York Times just recently by Karim Sajidpour at the Carnegie Endowment. It's called The Question is No Longer Whether Iranians Will Topple the Ayatollah. And I'm wondering whether that's wishful thinking. Is it inevitable that the women of Iran are going to finally free that country from this disgusting fraud of uh, religious kleptocracy? Well, time is certainly on the hand in, in on the side. Time is on the side of the protesters, the women of Iran, the young people of Iran. It's not on the side of the regime. But um, I think one has to be a bit more sober and circumspect about any possible, you know, change in regime in in, in Iran in in the short term. Despite despite what all of us, you know, who care about democracy and human rights might want. I want to draw your attention, Ian, to a very recent and deeply insightful new book um, that's just been published by two prominent political scientists called Revolution and Dictatorship by Stephen Levitsky and, uh, at Harvard and, and Luke Hanwai at, at the University of Toronto. And it's a book basically about that examines the, the history of authoritarian stability. And they make the argument that revolutionary regimes that come to power tend to have a much longer shelf life. They they argue and they say explicitly that revolutionary regimes that come to power are three times longer to last than their non-revolutionary counterparts. And 71% of them, you know, survived at least three or more decades as opposed to 19% of non-revolutionary regimes. And they look at regimes like Vietnam, China, Cuba, and they also have an interesting chapter on Iran. And their argument revolves around sort of three key sort of points of reference, that uh, authoritarian durability tends to last much longer in these revolutionary regimes that come to power after a revolution where there is, number one, a cohesive ruling elite that can deal with opposition threats and insurrections. Uh, number two, that these revolutionary regimes are uh, tend to have a longer shelf life because they have uh, powerful and logical coercive apparatus. In other words, a loyal security force, military, police, et cetera. And then third, 
authoritarian durability in these revolutionary regimes is enhanced by the uh, by a weak and divided opposition. Now, if you break down all those three categories, they they apply perfectly well to Iran. You know, there is a cohesive ruling elite. We haven't over the last four months seen any major defections from Iran's senior elite, although there's evidence that around the periphery, like the family of the supreme leader has come out and condemned him, uh, various sort of um, members of, of um, prominent families that are considered to be regime loyalists, they have spoken out. So there is signs of this happening, but no major defections among senior sort of uh, ruling elites of the regime has happened yet. That's something to look for, Ian, and it'll give us a sense when things might be changing. The other key element is the security forces. And in many ways, what's unique about Iran is that um, 43 years ago, when the Ayatollah Khomeini, you know, uh, led the revolution, they anticipated this moment of crisis when they formed a separate military organization known as the IRGC, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, which is separate from the military. And they are not only the most powerful institution in Iran, but they own large parts of the economy. In many ways, they their future is very much dependent on maintaining the status quo. So that's a big obstacle to overcome. And I think we'll begin to see changes in Iran when we start to see perhaps, hopefully, defections from Iran's military forces. And the third thing is the weak and divided opposition. Unfortunately, you know, uh, Iran's opposition uh, has been weak. I mean, one of the aspects of this revolution that we're seeing in Iran is there are no known leaders. Now, we're starting to see signs of an opposition organizing itself, having joint strikes, trying to come up perhaps with an alternative leadership and a platform. But we're, I think we're still a long way away from that. There are still major sort of ethnic divides, secular religious divides, class divides, rural and urban divides in Iran that keep the opposition somewhat fractured. But that I think is starting to change. So the more that these, I think, protests continue, the more it's going to start to shake the durability of the authoritarian regime. I suspect, you know, the military forces, the IRGC, are going to eventually sort of, you know, have to make a calculation how long they're going to want to repress. And the ruling elite themselves, you know, when we have these executions, this is the new development, Ian, you know, they're starting to execute people. And that's deeply embarrassing for the regime. So those are things to watch for, I think. So that's why I think this book, for anyone who's interested in a serious political science analysis of the future of Iran, they should read, you know, Revolution and Dictatorship by the two authors I mentioned. And just in the last couple of minutes, the Revolutionary Guard Corps is about 200,000 armed members. The military is estimated about 350,000. Is there any chance of the military defecting to the people? I mean, that's something to watch for. We know that when the regime of the Shah 43 years ago fell apart, it began when the military refused to fire on protesters. Um, uh, the senior uh, officer corps of both the Iranian military and the Revolutionary Guard Corps are handpicked and frequently rotated to make sure they are loyal to the regime. So I suspect if they're gonna be defections, it's not gonna come from the senior officer corps who are all deeply loyal to you know, the Supreme Leader and, and to the status quo. We might see it from lower level officers and and uh, smaller units that just refuse to sort of take orders to shoot on, on protesters. That's something to watch for. We haven't seen it yet, but that's usually when we start to see a political change in an authoritarian regime is when elements of the security forces start to defect. Well, you just mentioned the hanging. I mean, the young guy that was hanged the other day on a huge crane, uh, you know, dangling above Tehran. I mean, they're not exactly hiding their brutality, are they? 
That's correct. And I think it's actually a deliberate attempt. It's actually I interpret that hanging of this young man uh, as a sign of regime panic. Uh, they, they could have killed him in prison. But the fact that they're doing it in public is really uh, interpreted, in my view, as an attempt to send a message to Iranian society. Look, if you continue to protest, we will publicly hang you. So it's an attempt to terrify and intimidate the protesters. And on the plus side, the fact that the regime has to do this is because the protests are continuing. They're not stopping. So unfortunately, my prediction, Ian, is that we're going to see more of these public executions, as grotesque as they are, uh, as, a, as, an, as a, in an effort and as a clear strategy to try and intimidate and silence the protesters. Well, Nada Hashemi, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Nada Hashemi, who's the director of the Center for Middle East Studies at the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies at the University of Denver. He's the author of The People Reloaded, The Green Movement and the Struggle for Iran's Future. And his latest book is Sectarianization, Mapping the New Politics of the Middle East. We're going to take a brief station break and back assessing the second three-day Africa Leaders Summit underway in Washington. اگه دیدی درد مردم و ولی چشاتو بستی ظلم به مظلوم رو دیدی و از کنارش رفتی اگه از ترس یا واسه منفعتت خوده کردی تو هم هم دست ظالم هستی تو هم مجرم هستی اگه خودتو به خواب زدی وقتی که خونا رو میریختن گرفتار کسفتی وقتی جون جوونا رو میگی Welcome back I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing available 24/7 at backgroundbriefing.org and joining us now Dr Stephen W Rogers who is the executive director of the Africa Faith and Justice Network he has a background in public policy and urban planning with a special interest in globalization and governance in Africa Dr Rogers has served in the public and private sectors as an academic researcher and thought leader he's also had several years of experience in higher education in Sierra Leone and South Africa welcome to background briefing Dr Stephen W Rogers thank you I am Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us. And yesterday you were at the White House. There's a three-day summit on Africa going on at the moment. This is the second day today. So it's, this is actually the second Africa Leaders' Summit uh, that we've had so far. Tell me what happened yesterday at the White House. Thank you for your question, Anne. Um, I was actually at the United States Institute for Peace. So um, this was the Civil Society Forum which was mainly for civil society organizations based here in the United States, such as ours, the African Faith and Justice Network, as well as civil society organizations that came from the African continent. So this was pretty much the beginning of the event, which was focused on the inclusive partnership to, ad to advance Agenda 2063, which is the African Union agenda on a more, you know, more robust Africa that we want. So this was the event about. So basically, it, it included civil society organizations. It included a couple of heads of states. Um, it included mostly young people as well on various issues in terms of how the United States can partner with Africa on these different areas. And there were like three, I think, three partners. One of them was really about, um, one of them, was, I think it was about um, including young people in terms of their various um, their various skills and how that can be partnered with Africa, with the United States, as well as the various civil societies really coming together and focusing on the things that we all care about. 
So basically, that was what happened yesterday, and just in a nutshell. And how many African leaders did show up at the White House? So, well, this was in the U- United States Institute of Peace. There were quite a few. And I think if I remember just looking at the program, there were like at least about five or six African leaders. One of them was the president from Zambia, who sat on a panel that really discussed like corruption, which is a major issue that African countries, as well as civil societies in Africa, are very much concerned about. And um, I think the major, the major, the major point there was to really highlight Zambia as uh, as, a, as a, one of the key roles in the country that is really playing a very serious role in terms of ameliorating corruption. And I think um, the president himself was seen as an example, so he was brought on the panel, as well as vice president, I think, from Gambia, and then a prime minister from um, from I think it was Cape Verde, which is in West Africa. They were on this panel that I attended to, so it was. USAID, so Samantha Power was actually the chair for this particular panel. So the discussion was really about anti-corruption, how the U.S. government can actually help civil society organizations as well as government to be able to tackle some of the issues around corruption. So this was one of the several panels that happened yesterday. So let's talk about the White House's agenda for Africa. And obviously there's a lot of reporting that suggests that the Biden White House is trying to play catch up on Africa because of uh, the penetration of Africa, if you will, of China's mercantilist approach and, of course, as well as Russia's efforts to foment instability for its strategic and financial benefit. That is obviously the dark side of the story. But on, on the American side, apparently there are four pillars that they're offering up to foster openness and open societies delivering democratic and security dividends, advancing pandemic recovery and economic opportunity, and supporting conservation, climate adaptation, and a just energy transition. Obviously, all four are pretty ambitious, but um, how is the United States seen in Africa? Obviously, the former President Trump set a very low bar with his disgraceful comments about Africa and his kind of racist disdain for Africa, but Secretary of State Blinken has traveled to Kenya, Nigeria, Senegal, Morocco, Algeria, South Africa, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and Rwanda this month. So he's obviously the Biden administration is trying. How would you describe it? Are they playing catch up? I, I think, first of all, they are very much. I think they're starting on a, on a trust deficit here. I think there's a trust deficit there. And as you mentioned rightly, I am. This is the second. In 2014, the Biden, the, the Obama administration had one of the first U.S.-Africa summits, and many African, this is eight years, almost eight years ago, and many African countries were here in the United States, which was really about resetting the relationship between the U.S. and Africa. The idea was really to start, first of all, from semantics, looking at this relationship from a partnership perspective. So we are partners in development. And moving away from these donor versus, you know, power countries, giving money to people and then seeing them as victims. So we, African countries, we are really looking forward to that kind of relationship in terms of business, in terms of investment, infrastructure, healthcare, and these other areas. And everybody was supposed to bring something on the table. Now, the challenge of that was there was never a follow-up. So everything was just a symbolic gesture. 2014, 
2018 to now, nothing happened. So basically, everybody went back to their default mode, and then we became what we were. Now, what the Biden administration is doing, as they rightly mentioned, is really a catch-up. They're trying to reset this relationship. And at least openly, that's what they are saying, to what will truly give life to a new era of partnership. Now, the big elephant in the room, obviously, is China. The idea of trying to counter China. I lived in Africa and I go there all the time. We work in Africa, AFJ, and the Africa Faith and Justice Network. One of the things we have seen on the continent, whether it's in South Africa, which is probably one of the most advanced countries in Africa, or going to Zambia, where um, 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 China has had an enormous impact, or even in Sierra Leone, my country of birth, is that China has had enormous impact in terms of um, infrastructure investment, in terms of um, banking sectors, even in terms of small-scale um, business sectors. So they are pouring money in this country, and these monies don't come with conditionality, which make them so easy and obviously very susceptible, especially in countries where there is very little democratic um, governance, very little oversight. And so you have um, governments that are more willing to take this money. Now, in exchange for that, um, these, some of these countries have almost literally given up part of their sovereignty. So, for instance, if you go to Zambia, a significant amount of Zambia's infrastructure is actually now owned by, by China, and which explains in part why you, President Hakainde Hichilema, the Zambia president, was here yesterday, because I'm pretty sure, um, in addition to the fact that they wanted to showcase his anti-corruption credentials, the fact of the matter is he is actually the exact opposite of his predecessor in Zambia in the sense that he has actually leaned more towards the West. But I think what really African countries need to get from this relationship, this meeting here, where more than 50 African heads of states and governments are, is to really move beyond just China, but to engage the United States in a much more organic way. And what that really means is, first of all, focusing on issues that African countries are really concerned about, you know, and issues around them. Um, investment on critical sectors, about healthcare, about infrastructure, about energy, agribusiness, and digital, um, all the digital, digital era. So these are very serious engagement issues. But my worry, and maybe we might get to that, my worry is that this might not really materialize because literally what you see when these heads of state normally come to the country, like in the United States, you see more of a bipartisan, I mean bilateral, communications as opposed to a real true African agenda on a multilateral basis. So you will see the U.S. dealing with specific African countries as opposed to actually dealing with Africa as a continent on the broader issues that all of them agree upon. So that's where we are. So these are very important meetings. And I can tell you for sure there is no substitute like having heads of state making these connections. So there is no question about that. But these partnerships have to be on a multilateral basis. Um, the, the, one of the things I didn't see, for instance, I didn't see an African position like coming here, like one voice, this is what we want as a continent. Um, basically, what I saw here was just African states coming, African heads of state coming here, and likely every one of them having conversations on what their needs are for their, either their region or for their country. So that's, that's a big elephant in the room. So just to touch on Russia's, as I mentioned, efforts to foment instability for its strategic and financial benefit, it's, it's deployed the Wagner mercenaries in a number of African countries. Um, and they, of course, 
deeply involved in the war in Ukraine, and the war in Ukraine, of course, has caused the shut-off of exports of Ukrainian grain to Africa. So how how has this war in Ukraine affected African countries' relationships with Russia? Well, first of all, you have to understand that um, because of the war in Ukraine, Africa economically has been significantly ravaged, um, in part because trade has been... Russia, Africa has been benefiting a lot from some of the businesses it's doing in Ukraine. I mean, some of the, the, the agri- agricultural sector and grains and some of the products that get exported to, to Africa. Now, the war in Ukraine has significantly impacted that. So now what you see is um, Africa itself has really not been able to, to benefit as a result of the war. But I think the bigger question here is, and again, I come back to the United States, it's how the war in Ukraine has kind of really brought to light the relationship between the continent of Africa and the West, in particular the U.S., because there was so much appetite in terms of investment, in terms of money, in terms of media coverage, in terms of everything when the war came in Ukraine. Now, don't forget, during the same short period, there were so many issues on the continent of Africa. There were wars in Sudan, wars in Democratic Republic of Congo, Somalia, drought in Mozambique, and, you know, a couple of pandemics on and off, even with Ebola, a brief kind of, you know, offshoot in Uganda and other parts. Now, none of these were really focusing issues because of the war in, in, in Ukraine. But I think there's something we can all learn from this. And this is where I think um, this summit becomes even more important. During the war in Ukraine, because of the influence of Russia, I think the president, President Biden, President Biden had made a commitment openly that perhaps it is now time for the United Nations Security Council to be reformed. And I think part of that was to be able to, to counter the influence of Russia, especially in terms of what happened in Ukraine. Many African countries have been calling for decades for a reform, in part because the Security Council, at the time that it was designed back in 1945, um, so many had changed. You know, the, we, this is um, 2022. Africa has become a much more prosperous country. The populations have changed. Um, developing countries, um, even in Asia, have significantly um, improved, both economically as well as their demographics and population. So there was a need to redefine that to give Africans at least at minimum a seat on the table. And this includes the Security Council, the permanent seat on the Security Council. So there is this need, and I think there is a dialogue about this on how the U.S. can use that opportunity now that there is some appetite, both from the U.S. and as well as France, if I remember, to be able to come together and say we have something at least that we can agree on, that the, the Security Council has to be reformed in such a way that we can give some kind of voice to other countries that have never been given voice to, you know. And, I, and, and this is one of the things I think um, that hopefully the Biden administration would kind of address as part of his, you know, his commitment that he said openly, but to move beyond just the announcement and actually bring up a resolution somehow, maybe in Congress, to be able to consider this. Otherwise, the only way you can counter the influence of Russia in in, in, in Africa now, as is happening, is to be able to give voice to African countries so that they can actually be able to move beyond just um, you know, asking for aid, but actually making, you know, being on the sitting table and making decisions on behalf of themselves, rather than being um, objects to the decisions that are made by other countries. 
including the, including Russia in this case. So, uh, Stephen W. Rogers, just in the last few minutes then, you've brought up corruption in Africa, and that's something that the your organization, the Africa Faith and Justice Network, has always been dealing with. I've had many conversations over the years with uh, um, Anedi Akure, who I believe is now in, in Rome. So, yes. for example, the country of Zimbabwe is thoroughly corrupt and a, and a failed state. I mean, people live in absolute misery there. The currency is worthless, and yet the elite, led by the so-called crocodile, who was the, the hitman for the previous uh, long-time dictator, you know, he, he got the nickname Crocodile because he fed the political opponents of um, Robert Mugabe to the crocodile. So it's a very sad story, but it goes on and on. I mean, we talked about decades of corruption there, and people live in miseries. So it leads you to ask, how do these incredibly corrupt states survive so long? That's the sad story, is it not? It is, and um, thanks for bringing that up, um, because I think part of the conversation we had yesterday was how the U.S. really would be able to help. Because don't forget, um, I mean, politics in Africa has become a lot more competitive and in many cases have become violent, in part because of access to resources, mostly public resources. And, and access to these resources are really used by heads of states, by people in public offices to siphon the money and to put them into accounts that are never traceable. Now, what we do here, and which goes back to this, is, is that the way to be able to minimize the incidence of this, especially grand corruption, and I'm talking about corruption at a higher level that impacts, you know, access to school, access to hospital, access to, you know, private things that are made public, public services, many of which the money comes from abroad, whether it's United States aid, USAID, or whether it comes from different other agencies around um, the, the United States, is that the U.S. can tighten some of its laws to actually, you know, for instance, elicit financial flow. And these are monies. You know, normally, once they are stolen in Africa, they are brought back to, you know, put in banks here in the U.S. or maybe not even in the U.S., but just other foreign countries. And, and I know there was a U.S. Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, but that act, in my view, and I think it needs to be amended to include even Americans. Many of these foreign leaders have actually got American citizenship. They are living abroad, but then they steal the money and bring it back here, put it into mortgage and stuff like that to be able to really track those illicit financial flows. And the second thing is, I think um, the U.S. gives money, to, especially USAID, the Millennium, I think um, the MCC, Millennium Compact Challenge or something like that, gives money for good governance in developing countries. But I think the measurement of that has to be reassessed because um, most of the time when the money goes there, they are normally not put into public, into proper use. So there is a need to be able to capture this because these countries are having good elections, free and fair elections. And I, I think there is some credit to that. But governance moves beyond just free and fair elections. It's about actually delivering for the people. So once that part of it is really not addressed, then there is a tendency for um, what we see democratic backsliding, as we have seen in countries like Gambia, not Gambia, in countries like uh, Guinea-Conakry, in countries like Mali, and other parts of the Sahel. So there is a need to address this part, which actually allows governments to actually deliver on the services, and then people would continue to have faith in democracy, because it's the only thing that we have. It's not 
probably the best, but there's nothing better than that. And I think we all do acknowledge that. But that missing gap is where I think, um, uh, for instance, the U.S. government should be able to address. And finally, finally, to be able to actually focus on small organizations as well that are really making difference in Africa and as um, trying to maybe fund those organizations and focus on those minor um, programs that are really making um, serious changes on the continent at grassroots. Well, Dr. Stephen Nabu Rogers, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian, for the interview. Thank you. I appreciate it. And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Stephen W. Rogers, who's the Executive Director of the Africa Faith and Justice Network. He has a background in public policy and urban planning with a special interest in globalization and governance in Africa. Dr. Rogers has served in the public and private sectors as an academic, researcher, and thought leader. He's also had several years of experience in higher education in Sierra Leone and South Africa. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. Disappeared by half past